You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. We're still figuring it out after a long time. Wow, that's really booming, huh? Yeah, okay. Um, can you guys maintain that? Are you okay with that? I promise not to yell. So that'll be good. All right. Um, so what I want to do is make sure that we have some help for uh, enough time for Q&A as we go. So I'm going to walk into this. Now, God's will, like everything else in Scripture, is one that is um, it's just not easy to talk about. There's a lot of pieces to it. There is the good. There's the, there's the uh, difficult with it. It's all good. It's the Lord. Um, good. That, that works. Thanks. Um, but... It's hard to talk about because we talk about somebody's will and what they intend and what they want, and we have to talk about a lot of ideas of what's behind what we see. And so what we're going to do is, at all times, everything we do scripturally uh, is, is going to rely on what the Bible says, and where the Bible doesn't communicate, we're going to try to live in the tension. I talked about it last week, but whenever we're talking about um, anything in scripture, our minds want to sometimes form connections when those connections may not be there. So what we find is that like, we may talk about a particular subject matter that, that takes us down a track linearly in our minds about what logic should, should say should happen. And this track says something that may feel like it's in opposition. And what we want to do is find a way to make them meet and coexist in a way that makes our minds be okay with that. But sometimes the scriptures just stop short and they don't connect the dots. And I've, I've, I'm the kind of guy that wants to make everything fit I have learned by God's grace and mercy on me by over and over again pushing it upon me that that's not the way he wants us to understand him, that it's better to hold the tension and just stay there and not make it work. Our finite minds just can't wrap around sometimes the infinite nature of God and his character and his desires. And so we're going to have to deal with that tonight quite a bit. So let's just talk about God's will. Now, I'm going to refer to Grudem's book, Systematic Theology, a lot on this. I have done a lot of research and a lot of systematic theologies over my tenure. <clears throat> but um, his is just so replete with Scripture, and I'm going to use quotes from him to keep it simple. I could use from a lot of people. I, I prefer, though, to stick to one guy so that if you do buy one resource for this, this time together, these, these classes that you will not have to be looking all over the place at different people's stuff, but we can stick to one guy. Now, I don't agree with everything that Grudem says, but I think it's a good place for us to start. So I'm going to use his definition for what we're talking about when we say God's will. So I have it listed at the top of the notes. God's will is the attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence of himself and activity of himself and all creation. Say it one more time. God's will is the attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence of himself and the activity of himself, like what he does, not just who he is, but what he does also, and for all of creation. So I'm just going to pause there and ask for God to help us in this time. Let's pray together and we'll jump right in. Father, I am I'm a man who is faulted and sinful who needs your grace, your mercy, your illumination by your Holy Spirit now as the rest of us do. Lord, thank you for being kind enough to give us your words that we might know who you are, know what you have promised, 
and know that we can trust you because you always fulfill your promises. And Lord, that we can know that you have sovereign hands over all of creation and you have a determined will for what you want to see happen. Help us to understand more about your will tonight that we might see you for who you are and that we would not then wish you to be different but that we would be changed to worship you as you are and to enjoy you more because of it. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when we talk about God's will, we're talking about several different pieces. I just want to give a couple of passages from Ephesians off the bat that refers to God's will. So Ephesians 1, 7 through 11, talking about in Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, this is talking about the Father now, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. In other words, the mystery of his will was that he would send Jesus to die on the cross for us. Okay, that's the mystery. It's been proven and shown to us now. He says, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of whose will? His will. His will. So he does all things according to the counsel of his will. Later on in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, Paul says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God has a will, a desire. He orchestrates all things according to that will. And we know that at least some of his will has been made known to us in Jesus. And that he's revealed that to us in the gospel of Jesus. So let's talk about that and break that apart a little bit. So we talked earlier about the definition. Part of the definition is about um, his approving and determining what uh, to bring about every action necessary for all creation. So let's talk about that for a second with a few passages. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. That means he's more important, he is more magnanimous, he is more majestic, he's in all those ways, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in other words, everything exists as it does. These chairs, the molecules work together in the metal and in the cloth because that's how he's determined and he holds it all together in his will. Right? And we see Revelation 4.11. We talked about that a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, but let's see it in this context. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. This is what the, the, um, the, the elders are in heaven are every time the, the four creatures around the throne praise him and call him holy. They cast their crowns down and they say this phrase over and over again. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will... They existed and were created. So everything that's been created ever is by God's will. Even Satan, who fell from God's grace, was created by God's will. Everything that's ever been created is by God's will. Nothing that's ever come into being has been without God's will. So even mosquitoes, even though we can't figure out why he needed to have that here or wanted to have that here, God's will made that happen, right? 
supposed to be funny? It's funny to me. I always wonder why mosquitoes, right? But you guys wonder about any particular things in creation? I mean, obviously there's some horrible things that go on we wonder about that happen in creation. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But um, So outside of creation, though, what about bigger things to us in the more immediate future for concerns for us? What about governments, kingdoms? Uh, we see in scriptures like Daniel 4, 31 through 32, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. In other words, you may think you're in charge of the United States or of Assyria or whatever, but God is in charge. He lets people rule and puts people in positions of power. We know that in Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, that doesn't mean there's not times for not subjecting yourselves to a government, like a tyrannical government like Hitler and the, and the Reich there, but um, that in general, he said he's put these in place to accomplish his goals. Uh, we even know, if you go back and read Exodus, that he says he basically put Pharaoh in that place so that he might get glory over Pharaoh so that all the world would know that he is the one true God, right? So that, that's how God works in those areas, his will shown there. God's will regarding Jesus' suffering and death. Just one example, Acts 4, 27 through 28. This is important to catch on because I think oftentimes we think that um, God does not ever allow suffering of his will. But it doesn't take long to get to Jesus and see that he does. Here it's talked about in Acts 4. We pick it up in the middle, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, you planned that your son would suffer on the cross and die. And so it's pointing out that, that God's will was for Jesus to suffer. It says in the Psalms that it pleased God to crush his son. So this is a, a thing that's hard for us to, to gather and understand, but the reason that's the way he planned in order to bring salvation to his people. Now, we'll take it a step further. Sometimes, and this is something we don't want to hear about, but it's in the scripture, sometimes it is God's will that Christians suffer. We don't want to hear that. But if it's in God's will, if we know that we are directed by God's will, nothing happens outside of his ability. But here it even states more so that he plans it out sometimes. Look at 1 Peter 3.17. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's a crazy statement, isn't it? Again, 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So this is not easy for us to take in. I don't know why. I don't know exactly how it works. Hey, the notes are right to the right of you right there. There you go. I don't know why it works this way, but it does. And, and there are times where God has his will, his desire is that some would suffer. Okay, I, don't, I, don't, I can't understand his mindset on that. I won't put myself in his position to try to judge that. 
It's just what the scriptures tell us. Sometimes he does. And we should recognize, and I think most of us do, that would be present or listening today or watching this today, James 4, 13 through 15 shows us that all events in our life are subject to God's will. Right? These are the parts I have to be reminded of regularly. James 4, 13 through 15 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade or make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Right? I think in Alabama, the way I grew up with it was different. It was if good Lord willing and the creek don't rise, right? So I, this is the way we should live our life. We shouldn't say, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So if the Lord wills, this is what my plans are. If it's what his will is. Here's a quote from Grudem. Just as we can will or choose something eagerly or reluctantly, happily or with regret, secretly or publicly, so also God, in the infinite greatness of his personality, is able to will different things in different ways. So sometimes God might bring suffering, but it doesn't please him to bring suffering, but it's for a greater purpose. Or sometimes he may allow something to happen because it will eventually be more glorifying to him and better for some outcome that's greater than we can see or know at that moment. But it doesn't please him. He may reluctantly do something. He may do so in a way that that is greater good but doesn't like that he allows that thing to happen. He doesn't like evil. He doesn't like death or disease. He sent Jesus to fix that. But he's allowed it for some reason, and it's greater than we can understand. So we have to understand that sometimes he chooses to do things eagerly or reluctantly, happily or with regret, secretly or publicly, just like we do sometimes. Like, I don't ever enjoy having to bring discipline to my child, but I do it because it's for a greater good. And so we have to think of things this way as well. We're made in his image. We can connect with that. So let's talk about some differentiation, some distinctions in God's will. Uh, and all this stuff falls right along with Grudem's outline. I think it's easier to kind of stay with that outline. Um, but it, these are where it starts to get a little more complicated for us, okay? And there are some arguments against this. And he talks about some of that in his at least most updated edition of his systematic theology. I think even in his older ones, like this one, he discusses it as well. But God doesn't have like two or three different wills. It's just that we're seeing different parts of his will and how it's revealed to us at different times, okay? So in other words... Here we talk about God's necessary will and God's free will, okay? His necessary will, I've got a quote there from Grudem, I'm just going to kind of state it in my own way. His necessary will is all the things that God wills that have to happen in order for him to still be God, okay? Like Grudem gives some examples. God eternally wills to be or wants to be who he is and what he is. So this is that he wills himself. He continues existing because he wants to continue to exist. To be God, he has to do that. It's necessary, right? Um, he, in other words, his, his attribute of being eternal is a necessary attribute of him being the God of the universe that is the eternal God. He can't stop being eternal and still remain the eternal God. So it's a necessary will. And then you have what we call God's free will. God's free will includes all things that God decided to will but had no necessity to will according to his nature. In other words, these are all the things that he didn't have to do, but he decided he wanted to do out of his own free volition to do so. That would include everything in creation being created and everything in redemption and everything else outside of what it takes for him to exist himself. Okay? 
He's deciding to do it, not because he has to, but because he just wants to. The motives for that, Scripture tells us some of those, not all of them. But let's see how that looks like. I wrote down here, God didn't have to create the universe, but it was his will to do so, his free will. God did not have to redeem anyone, but it was his will to do so, his free will. So let's look at some passages. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So he's created everybody for his glory. He didn't have to do that, but he decided to do that. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So he's doing all these things out of his will for this to happen. He goes on, Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. 1 Corinthians 8.6. Yet for us there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we are all things and through whom we exist, or Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So we see things in eternity of creation that he just desired to will those things into being, including us, and here we start to see redemptive actions that are what he's doing. They're not necessary, but they are his free will to make them happen. Now, why is this important for us to understand the difference? Uh, I've got a quote here from Gruden that helps with it. I think it would be helpful. Look there at this quote in the middle of the page if you have the notes. It would be wrong for us, he says, to ever try to find a necessary cause for creation or redemption in the being of God himself. In other words, to say that God, it'd be wrong for us to ever say that God had to create us to be the God he is or that God had to redeem us to be the God he is. He says, for that would rob God of his total independence. It would be to say that without us, God could not truly be God. That makes him dependent upon us. God's decisions, he goes on, God's decisions to create and to redeem were totally free decisions. Okay, it's because he wanted to create us, to love us, and to redeem us. Not because he had to, to continue being God. Now, I've heard that preached in all kinds of ways, and a lot of people think that God had to create us and had to save us in order for him to be God. God needed nothing. The, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect harmony and did not need anything to be completely holy God in perfect majesty and glory and beauty. But out of the overflow of their love, they created us and have redeemed us. God himself has done that. Not because he needs us. It's not a necessary will. Now it's going to get even more confusing. So you all ready for that? Yes? Okay, a few of us are ready. God's secret will versus God's revealed will. Now this is debatable, highly debated, about the language used here. There's all kinds of ways it could be referred to. I'm going to save you the, the boring theological terms for it. Um, but... I believe this is a good, I think Grudem gives a good way to see it scripturally. And I'm going to stop short of a few of the statements he made in his chapter. But, um, and that's because I fall back into it even more, like I talked about. When things are stated by the scripture here, and they say this, I sit in the tension. I don't want to try to resolve something just to make it 
fit in my brain's way of orchestrating a doctrinal like framework. I want to say, okay, if it doesn't ever say that these connect and have to figure it out, then I'm going to be okay sitting in the tension. Um, so I'm going to pull back a little bit from Grudem, but I think he does a great job in his terminology here and how he displays it. God's secret will versus God's revealed will. Deuteronomy 29.29 refers to both. It's a great example. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So you see, what he's saying there is that the revealed will of God is God's law for us. This is his instruction manual for us, right? This is what you do, what you don't do, how you live, how you love the Lord, how you serve him, how you worship, how you have relationship with God. And then there's secret things of God that we just aren't going to know until he reveals them to us at some point, if we ever get to know them. Grudem talks about it. He says, those things that God has revealed are given to us for the purposes of obeying God's will that we may do all the words of this law. He just quotes Deuteronomy 29. So I've got here, God's revealed will usually contains his commands or principles for our moral conduct. So when we're talking about revealed will in this context, we're talking about him stating, hey, this is what God wants, so now you know what to do. Or here's what God's commanding, so now you know how to live in that will of God. Okay, so it gets confusing. We use the same word to talk about that as God's secret will. Um, Let me just break them down a little bit here as we're looking mostly at God's um, revealed will here. Right? Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So here he's saying, if you do what I've told you to do, that's the ones who are going to be in heaven with the Father. Right? Not everybody who just says, Lord, Lord, to me, but those who do the will of the Father. 1 John five fourteen. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, we're saying you ask anything according to what he's shown you his will is okay lord you want people to come to faith lord would you bring people to faith please use us in the process we know you're going to bring people to faith or lord you say you want to heal people so would you heal my friend and he may say yeah i'm going to heal him by bringing him home to heal him fully right but he does heal he's going to answer that prayer some way because he's already told you that's his will to do so Ephesians 5.17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So in other words, he's saying really clearly, don't be foolish, understand the will of the Lord. Here it is, it's plain for you, right? So that's talking about the revealed will of God. Grudem says, God's revealed will is God's declared will concerning what we should do or what God commands us to do. And then he switches and says, God's secret will includes most of his hidden decrees by which he governs the universe and determines everything that will happen. He does not ordinarily reveal these decrees to us except in prophecies of the future. So these decrees really are God's secret will. We find out what God has decreed when events actually happen. This is where we say things like, yeah, if the Lord wills it to happen, then it'll happen. We don't know. And then we look back and go, oh, it was the Lord's will for that to happen, right? That's the secret will of God not his decreed or revealed will of God. So here's some examples. Uh, James 4, 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Or Genesis 50. We just did a little study of Joseph, right? Here's some examples. Verse 20 through 21. As for you, Joseph says to his brothers, because they, what? They, they, they sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him. They sold him into slavery and told his dad he was dead. He says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, was it good in some ways? Like, he was thrown into slavery, and then he was thrown into prison, right? 
But he's saying, what you meant for against me, for evil, God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Or 1 Corinthians 4.19, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Or Matthew 6, 9 through 10 shows us a flip side. Some, it could be either way. Grudem thinks this is talking about God's revealed will. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you're praying this, he's assuming that it comes out as a revealed will. He says, if we understand your will be done to refer to God's revealed will, then all the moral teachings of Scripture provide guidelines for teaching us how to pray. That's a true statement. Any revealed will, any command of God tells us how to pray. We pray for that command to be brought forth in us, in others, whatever that would be. But it could also be secretive will here, right? When you say uh, in, in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I don't know what your will is in this particular situation. But Lord, would you make your will known and do it? Just resolve the issue for us, please, Lord. You know, it could be that way as well. We're not exactly sure, but I probably lean into Grudem's side on that as well. How about this? This is going to get into hard stuff. Are you ready for the salvation part of this? We're not going to get into the province of God today, but we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth here. God's revealed will regarding salvation. Now, we know what some of that is. Look at 1 Timothy 2. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We know God desires that, right? He says it plainly. We know that's true. Here's the problem. Not everybody's going to be saved. So his desire is that all would come to salvation, but not all people are going to come to salvation. We know that. So it's hard to rack. How does this work? Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should remain, that, that all should reach repentance. So he desires that everybody reach repentance. That's why he's working slowly through the salvation history. He wants to see everybody repent. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That was a call of Jesus saying, come to me, I'll be your savior, right? To all people, all who are heavy laden. But then we see terminology about God's secret will regarding salvation. Look at these passages, Matthew eleven twenty five and 26, which is, by the way, right before that, come to me, all you who are weary laden or heavy laden. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In that context of talking about salvation, he says, God, you've hidden that understanding from some people. That's not the only time he says it. He says other places in Scripture. And that kind of blows my brain a little bit. I want to see all people come to faith, but he's hidden it from some people. Okay, I don't know why or how that fits, but I believe the scriptures to be true. That means there must be this declared will. He wants all to come to faith, so come, repent, believe in the gospel. And then he also, though, is, I believe it falls into our depravity. We need God to jumpstart us by wooing us with the Holy Spirit. And for some reason, that doesn't happen for everybody. He's hidden it from some. I don't know why. If you have trouble with that, just go back and look at Exodus, though, or read Romans 9 that refers to the Exodus story where it says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God hardens his heart. And then it basically says, I did that so that I might get glory over you. Now, if he would do it to Pharaoh, we have to imagine that he would do it to another, possibly. 
So I don't understand why or how, but I trust the Lord. And he says he wishes all would come to repentance. But here it says he hides it. Romans 9.18 says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I don't think these are mutually exclusive. I, I don't think they are. Here, here's why. Even the example of Pharaoh is a great example. And that's what he's talking about in Romans 9.18. When he says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What did he do? How did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Do you remember the story? He hardened Pharaoh's heart by going to him, sending Moses ten times after ten plagues, saying, let my people go. In other words, repent, Pharaoh, repent. He showed grace and mercy and said, repent, here's an opportunity. And Pharaoh said, no. And then he went again and did another thing and came back and said, hey, repent. So his way of hardening his heart was by giving him mercy. I heard one guy refer to it in this way, and it really connected with me because I grew up in Alabama. And uh, I played baseball in Alabama, and uh, I don't know about some of you guys, if you notice the clay in the soil, it's not always fun playing baseball in Alabama on the hard clay, especially when you're sliding face first, right? But uh, he said it like this, God's grace and mercy shown on the land. He's using a biblical illustration, right? When it hits soil that is rich and black, like in the black belt down south, the rich soil down there, it just produces crops like crazy. But when it hits the hard, brittled soil, the clay, what does it do? It hardens it even more. But it's still God's grace doing that. He's desiring all to come to repentance. The problem is not in God. The problem is in us that we are unrepentant people. They're sinners, right? So uh, again, it's God's secret will, God's revealed will. I'm not sure how it works all together. Here's a good illustration of what, what he says. Grudem refers to it. He says, both the revealing of the good news of the gospel to some and it's hiding from others, are said to be according to God's will. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This, again, must refer to God's secret will, for his revealed will is that all come to salvation. Indeed, only two verses later, Jesus commands everyone, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And both Paul and Peter tell us that God wills all people to be saved. Those passages we just read in 1 Timothy and 2 Peter. And then he says this, thus the fact that some are not saved and some have the gospel hidden from them must be understood as happening according to God's secret will, unknown to us and inappropriate for us to seek to pry into. You hear that? Inappropriate for us to seek to pry into. In the same way, we must understand the mention of God's will in Romans 9.18. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In Acts 4.28, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place as references to God's secret will. In other words, it's just we don't see it come in. It's not a command to us. It's something God does kind of behind the scenes. We don't know why. And it's not really appropriate for us to try to understand and say, okay, God, why did you do that? You notice when Job asked, why did you put me in that suffering? What happens to Job? Do you remember? Job, God says, who are you? Were you there when I created the foundation of the earth? Right? The same thing is what Paul says in Romans 9. So it's one of those things where it's not our place, although our minds want to have an answer, but we are the creature created by the creator, and we have to just understand this is who God is. I don't get it all. But I know he says both things in Scripture. Again, I don't want to fall into a um, Calvinistic, Arminian side on this. I don't want to fall into an Augustine side on this versus a Lutheran side on this. I don't want to, I just want to, what does the Scripture say? 
And what is the, if the Bible says that he wants all to come to faith, yes, Lord, I believe you. If the scripture says that he hides it from some, okay, Lord, I don't understand, but I trust you. You're still holy and good. And that's where we have to kind of land. All right. Everybody good to go now? You got it down? You can just go teach it to everybody else? You feel comfortable, satisfied, ready to go? Everybody in the room said yes. Okay. All right. This is my next question then. Does this make God evil or the source of evil and destruction? Does God then cease to be a good God? And the answer, of course, we know as those who believe in Christ is no, it does not. We're not attributing all things to him. Grudem even says, There is danger in speaking about evil events as happening according to the will of God, even though we sometimes see scripture speaking of them in that way. One danger is that we might begin to think that God takes pleasure in evil, which he does not do. Ezekiel 33.11 Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So no, he doesn't take pleasure in any of that. What we see here, though he can use it for his good purposes, which Grudem talks about more in the Providence chapter, Another danger is that we might begin to blame God rather than ourselves for sin or to think we are not responsible for our evil actions. But Scripture never goes there. Okay? I'm not going to read the rest of the quote, but Scripture never goes there. We are responsible at the same time. Just like in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God delivered him for crucifixion. God definitely planned for this to happen. It says, you crucified and killed him. That's what Peter says when he preaches, Right? In other words, God planned for this to happen, but you're the ones that did it. So God is planning and willing something to occur that is right and good. We know it's good because it's what redeems us. But evil is done by men that made that happen. Both things can coexist together. Right? Again, way beyond me, but both things can exist together. And one thing that's important for us to understand with this is the freedom of God. Okay? The freedom of God. We oftentimes think of things in our freedom, the lens of our freedom. It's easy. We're in the Western world. Freedom, democracy is the, is the pinnacle of where our civilization is. It's not as hard for people in Africa to understand these things about God. They don't flip-flop it as much as we do. But we have to first understand that of all people and God together, God is the most free. We, we have to agree with that, right? He's the most free to do whatever he wills. Okay, so... Here's the, here's the definition for it. God's freedom is that attribute of God whereby he does whatever he pleases. Now, it must line up with his character. He won't go against his own character. He ceases to be the God of the Bible. But he's free to do whatever he wants. He goes on, Grudem says, This definition implies that nothing in all creation can hinder God from doing his will. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So God is still sovereign there. He has the freedom. Proverbs 16.9, one of my favorites. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. My Thomas phrase of that is, I like to think I've got a plan, but God puts one foot in front of the other for me. Right? Daniel 4.34, 
At the end of the days, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking about his experience with God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does it according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The way it said in the old King James, no one can thwart God's plans, right? Here's a good little quote from Grudem on this. He says, because God is free, we should not try to seek any more ultimate answer for God's actions in creation than the fact that he willed to do something and that his will has perfect freedom, so long as the action he takes are consistent with his own moral character, which they always are. Sometimes people try to discover the reason why God had to do one or another action, such as create the world or save us. It is better simply to say that it was God's totally free will working in a way consistent with his character. That was the final reason why he chose to create the world and to save sinners, because we have no other reason. We don't have anywhere in Scripture that tells us why he chose to create the universe, other than he had the freedom to do so, it's in line with who he is, the end for us, accepting it. That's, that's where it lies for us. Now, I know I'm not talking today much about how to know God's will. That's a different subject matter. We're talking about a doctrine of God called God proper. That's the doctrine of God, the theology of who God is himself. We're talking about his will and how to understand his will, not so much about what does God want me to do in this situation. That's a whole other level of conversation about God's will. What we do know, and I can say just for a moment on that, is God has revealed everything we need to live this life in a way that glorifies and honors him in this book, in his word. And if we will just refer to it and do what it says in any and every situation, we know we're in the middle of God's will. Now, can he speak to you audibly? Sure he can. It happened a few times over several thousand years in the Bible, so I wouldn't wait for that to happen. Can he, by the Holy Spirit, quicken your spirit and say, don't do that? Sure he can and does. But it's much more subjective to understand if that's him or if that's the spirit working in you to like just be honest or if that's, if that's just a bad idea and your brain's telling you don't do that. You know, what we don't know, it's harder to determine. But if it lines up with the Bible, then yeah, do it. Or if it lines up with the Bible and it says don't, then don't do it. That's the easy answer. I think it's more important for us to understand though this proper God theology we're talking about, about his will. Um, and, and I really tried to put it in my own words, and I think Grudem just really nails it. And so I'm just going to read it. Right? It's out of pages 259 to 260 in the newest edition. Um, so bear with me a little bit before we get to a few question time, Q&A time. But um, let me just read how he concludes his note on the will of God. So he says this, As we conclude our treatment of God's attributes of purpose... It is appropriate to realize that he has made us in such a way that we show in our lives some faint reflection of each of them. God has made us as creatures with a will. We exercise choice and make real decisions regarding the events of our lives. Although our will is not absolutely free in the way God's is, God has nonetheless given us relative freedom within our spheres of activity in the universe he has created. Now, let me put a little context on that real quick. Pause there. What he means by we're not absolutely free is that we can't freely do anything we ever want to do. We tell people all the time, I, I've been guilty to all my kids, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything you want to do. That's not totally true, is it? 
I could tell that to my son, who's of shorter stature, and recognize he's probably never going to be an NBA star. No matter how good you shoot, if you're only 5'5", five five, you're probably not going to be an NBA star. It's stacked against you. Or if you've got really, really bad asthma, you're probably not going to be a Navy SEAL. Okay, That's just truth. That's hard truth. But no matter how hard you apply yourself, you're just not going to get there. Uh, even more real. I can't make myself olive-skinned. It's just not going to happen. Right? There's some things that I cannot do that aren't wrong to do. They'd be fine to do them but I don't have the freedom of will to do anything I want to do. We don't like to hear that, but that's just the truth. Like, I, I don't, if you wanted to see, no matter how hard I try, I don't have the ups that other people do. When I, take, when I jump straight up, I don't go very high, okay? It doesn't matter how hard I try, how hard I train. I can get better, but I can't get up there to get like a three-foot jump, four-foot jump like some guys can do. It's just not possible for me. I'm not built that way. So we have to understand that we are not as free as we like to think we are. God is. But we are created with a freedom of will in a way that we do have volition to choose and to connect with things and, and make activity happen and be a part of things. And, and we should see that as being made in God's image. And it should help us to understand God a little better. He goes on, he says, in fact, we have an intuitive sense that it is our ability to exercise our wills and make choices. And to do so in a relatively free way, that is one of the most significant marks of God-likeness in our existence. Of course, our desire to exercise our wills and our desire to be free from restraint can show themselves in sinful ways. People can become proud and can desire a kind of freedom that involves rebellion against God's authority and a refusal to obey his will. Nonetheless, when we use our will and our freedom to make choices that are pleasing to God, we reflect his character and bring glory to him. When human beings are deprived of their ability to make free choices by evil governments or by other circumstances, a significant part of their God-likeness is suppressed. It is not surprising that they will pay almost any price to regain their freedom. American revolutionary Patrick Henry's cry, give me liberty or give me death, finds an echo deep within every soul created in the image of God. We do not, of course, have infinite power or omnipotence. In other words, that means all power. That's what omnipotence means. We don't, we don't have infinite power or omnipotence any more than we have infinite freedom or any of God's other attributes to an infinite degree like he does. But even though we do not have omnipotence, God has given us power to bring about results, both physical power and other kinds of power, mental power, spiritual power, persuasive power, power in various kinds of authority structures, family, church, civil government, and so forth. In all these areas, as he closes down, he says, in all these areas, the use of power in ways pleasing to God and consistent with his will is, again, something that brings him glory as it reflects his character. So funny enough, as we're trying to understand God's will, we can look at our own will and understand that it is far less in greatness. And it is tainted with sin. Ours is. But it gives us insight to better understand God's will. His revealed will for us, his commands, and also his secret will for us that he'll reveal at a later date. Just like for my children. Sometimes they don't understand why I'm making them do what I'm making them do. Even if I tell them something, they still don't get it. One day, it will be revealed to them. My commanding will, my, 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 my moral will is, hey, don't, like, this is not even a bad thing. So don't eat on the couch, right? Don't bring your cereal on the couch. You spill your cereal. Please don't do that, right? Or at the table, don't put your elbows on the table, right? Don't, don't do this at the table. Why that? Well, because it's not proper. 
Well, why does that matter? One day you'll understand. One day you'll get it. Okay? Don't do that here. So I'm trying to teach them things they may not get, but I'm commanding, it's my revealed will for them, right, as, my, as their dad. And one day there's some things they don't understand now that I'm trying to shape them in because one day you need to show respect to people because you need to respect your wife, boys. And this is a small way you're going to learn how to respect other people, right? They don't get that. They can't understand that now. It's just like we can't fully grasp those things until God reveals it later, if he ever does, for some of his secret will. But we can trust his revealed will enough to rely on that as we go through our lives and then say, Lord, if it be your will, I'm going to do these things. And keeping ourselves in that mindset helps us to walk in assurance that God loves us, cares for us, and has declared his revealed will to us, but also that we can trust that his greater will will carry us through even if it's during times of suffering and hardship that many of us have had to go through recently. So that's my end to the teaching part of our time together. So um, any of you that know my number can text me. If I see that, I'll answer a question from online. Uh, But also, if any of you guys have questions right now, I know you're on the spot a little bit. I'm going to repeat the question for our viewers uh, that are watching uh, via live stream. But do you guys have any questions regarding God's will or even back from last week regarding the Trinity, knowing that I may have to say, I don't know, because I don't know all things, right? I'm not God. But um, I'll do my best to try to answer Anybody? Yeah, that's just a good question. So with a little more color, you ask the question basically, um, does prayer change God's will? That's a great question, and I'm not sure if I'm going to give you a good enough answer today. Um, but basically, we see in the Bible that, yes, prayer does change what God does sometimes according to what Scripture says. Now, that's hard for us to reckon because if he has a will and he's going to accomplish his sovereign will, then we want to just say, okay, God, your word said you're going to do this. He said, I'm going to destroy you, like when the people are in Exodus are, are not doing the right thing. They, they're not following the Lord. And then he relents from that because of the intercession that happens from Moses, right? So what we see, though, is that God said, hey, you deserve this destruction because you rebelled. And then someone intercedes and goes, oh, please, God, don't do that. We will repent. We'll lead them down the right path. And God relents from that destruction. So did that intercession make a difference? Yes. The question is, in his secret will, did he already will that that would happen so that then Moses would come around and and intercede for them and show people that he should be their leader or that he's the one they should look to that loves the Lord and they should follow Moses and then use that to bring about that they would follow Moses then from that better, who knows? What we do know, though, is that what we see on the surface, and God is not a God of of confusion, he's not deceiving us in his word, is that what what it appears to us, and he says, pray for these things, and he seems to act upon the prayers of the saints. You know, it's, it's talked about very vividly in Revelation about pouring out the bowls of the prayers of the saints, all these prayers of the saints. And I'm imagining what that's talking about in Revelation in particular is something more along the lines of, please come, Lord Jesus. 
Come, Lord Jesus, fix all the evil in the world. Destroy the evil and the wickedness and bring about righteousness, right? And all these prayers that have gone up for generations and generations. And what we see is this picture of the revelation of, of Jesus is about to come. And they pour out the bowls of the prayers of the saints saying, now's the time to answer the prayers, right? So does God, does God do things according to prayer? Yes. How it works, I really have no idea. Uh, but I know he does. He, he asks of that for us. He responds to prayer. Um, does it change his will? Uh, it appears to change his actions towards certain people at certain times. Does that mean it changes his will? I'm not sure if I would put it in that kind of language. Um, but that's a great question, and that's a question I think a lot of people ask. It's one that's debated a lot theologically. So thank you for that question, Anna. It's good. Anybody else? Does that satisfy your, your question enough for right now? Yeah, okay, good. It's okay for you to tell me no. All right, any other questions? I'm not getting anything right now. Um, are you on the Facebook live stream? Do you have questions on there? Okay. All right, thank you for doing that. All right, then, um, well, if there's no more questions then what I'll do is let you know that uh, next week we're going to have a different presenter. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And uh, we're going to be looking at, um, uh, I forget, what is next week? Who's got it in front of them, right there next to you? You've got it, Ginger, back there next to you. Um, one of those is the syllabus. I think it's God's sovereignty and omnipotence is all powerfulness. Yeah, so so God's sovereignty. So that you're, it's going to be a, It'd be a great week. I'm really excited about that one. In fact, I had a hard time letting go of it because I wanted to teach it because I love talking about the sovereignty of God. It's kind of one of those things I just really hit on a lot. But um, I think you're going to be blessed. I know I will be as I sit in here with you guys. So um, let me pray for us. And if you have other questions that hit you when you leave or you just didn't want to say it out loud or anything, then please email me, uh, thomaswatwealth.co, or you can you contact me via the office or via my personal cell phone number, and I'll be glad to try to answer anything I can. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your beauty and your majesty and that your will is perfect. Lord, we don't always understand you, and that's good, Lord, because it means you are really greater than us and you are worthy of our worship. But that makes it hard sometimes for us. If we're speaking honestly, it's hard when we don't understand why we're going through what we're going through. We don't understand why you would, might allow things to happen. But what we know is that we can trust you because you have done everything needed to be done to save us even when we did not deserve salvation and when you did not have to do it in order to remain God, but you did it because you love us. So Lord, we trust you. Help our unbelief. And Lord, we ask that in your will that you would bring more and more to faith as you use us as mouthpieces of your gospel and as we speak highly of Jesus, that more would be drawn, as he's lifted up, that more would be drawn to salvation, and we would get to rejoice and celebrate you at work in our midst. Lord, just most of all, we thank you for sending us Jesus. We thank you for sending your son to die for us. I'll never understand why you would do such a thing for someone so great and wonderful and beautiful and worthy for ones like me who are not. But Lord, we thank you for it. Help us to walk in the knowledge that your will is perfect and to walk in your revealed will in a way that we give you honor and glory as we trust in you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for families.